0: In this series, A Better Story, part of what we're trying to do is to dig down under the assumptions that we have when it comes to what we think about sex or sexuality or gender. We're trying to take very seriously the beliefs and the feelings and the ideas and the intuitions that people who live in America today have about these things and we're also trying to get a glimpse of this Christian vision when it comes to sex and gender what it looks like to be a part of that better story that God is telling if God does not have a better story on sexuality and gender then he's not worth following that's the gamble we're making is that his story and his view and his approach is always the best view. If if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Or if you grew up like me, a Baptist going to vacation Bible school, you don't have to turn there because Miss Florence made you memorize it. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Now, this is a really helpful passage of scripture for what we saw last week. Remember the work of Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, who shows us that typically we don't reason our way up to our moral views. We... When we offer reasons about morality, it's often justifications. It's often we've already got a position, a view, and we're reaching out to things that support it. And because we don't reason our way to our morality, because we intuit our way to it, we have these moral intuitions, because of that, we often have a hard time explaining why something is right or wrong. Now, this is a key insight because it's hard right now to explain your moral intuition on sexuality or gender. We just know in our gut what's right, what's wrong, what's good, and what's bad. And so our views about sex and gender typically are based on moral intuitions, not reasons. And these moral intuitions reside at a different place than our brain at a deeper level than our heads or our intellects. They reside in our hearts, in our guts, in our instincts. That's what Proverbs 4.23 is saying. Above all else, guard your... It doesn't say head. It doesn't say your thoughts. It doesn't say your reason, your logic. Above all else, guard your heart. For that's where the springs of life come from. So Jonathan Haidt is doing in social psychology exactly what the authors of Proverbs were doing 3,000 years ago. Now, what forms our moral intuitions if we're talking in terms of social psychology? Or what shapes our heart if we're talking in terms of a biblical theology of humans, of biblical anthropology? How do we get our moral intuitions? How does does our heart function the way it does? Stories. Our moral intuitions come from stories. Our hearts are shaped by stories. Humans are fundamentally storied creatures. Our moral intuitions are shaped by our most beloved stories because these stories, they do more than entertain us. God made us. Bound by time, and part of what that means is because we're bound by time, stories are fundamental because stories are about movement over time. That's what plot is. It's movement over time. God made us to be shaped by stories. That's why the book he gave us start, what's the first line of the book he gave us? In the beginning. Here comes a big old story. All right, so God made us this way. Now, What stories do is they they entertain, but then they do more than that. They capture our imaginations, our hearts, they get embedded in our psyche. And when it comes to the issue of sex and gender and sexuality, there are three fundamental stories that our society tells that are shaping our intuitions. They're shaping our hearts. Last week, we looked at the stories our society tells so well that we love to watch, homeschoolers and public schoolers, Christian schoolers, non-Christians, the stories that we love to watch that talk about identity, that in our age of authenticity, one of the most important things in life is your deepest dreams, your desires, and your job is to bring those to the world, and our sexual desires are part of that. Our sexual desires are both, we saw last week, a marker of our true self and a primary way of expressing our true self. So you've got to be true to yourself, no matter what others say. And if anyone puts pressure on you to change that about yourself, they are oppressing you. They are threatening your health. You're flourishing your core personal identity. That was last week. This week, tonight, we're going to look at the stories our culture tells about freedom. Next week, we'll look at the stories our culture tells about romance, about love. But tonight, our focus is on freedom. And when it comes to the stories that our society tells about freedom, the best place to start that I know of is sports. After all, one of the ways our society tells its deepest story is through the ritual around sports. For example, at the beginning of most major sporting events, someone will sing what? See the Star-Spangled Banner. That's right, the national anthem. And YouTube is filled with versions of like top 10 lists. And typically folks love Whitney Houston's version um, at the 1991 Super Bowl. And with equal, equal passion, they love to hate Roseanne Barr's version at the 1990 San Diego Padres game. But whoever is singing, Roseanne or Whitney, typically what happens in the climactic moment of the song is that when the singer gets to the phrase, which I'll try to not do it, but I don't know if I can say it without trying, or the land of the... And then it's this really high note. Free. Oh, who did... Did somebody have a recorder with him? You're a weirdo. Who brings a... I'm joking. That was good though. And in most renditions, this is this elongated note. And that's when the crowd starts really cheering, even though there's more to the phrase. What's the next phrase? What's the next half of the phrase? And the home of the brave. But in the home of the brave, in the narrative arc of the song is just an afterthought because the melody line and society highlight freedom. That's when the like, Fighter jets fly over and people jump to their seats. That's the main thing, freedom, not bravery. Many people who study American society say that freedom is our most important value. The right to be free has become the consummate cultural cliche, a banner under which we live our entire lives. And what does freedom mean for America at this particular point in our secular age? Freedom means removing constraints, removing limitations. The fewer the boundaries, the more the choices, the freer we feel. And again, this is not out there. This is in here. Churches have multiple worship service options. Christian private schools are aggressively finding ways to offer many more classes to their students, many more learning opportunities. All of us are living in this culture where less limitation, more choices equals better freedom. Think about our advertising, Tinder, which I'm sure all of you know a lot about. Single does what single wants. Old Navy and Kiki Palmer, best commercial of last year. You do, you boo. Burger King, have it your way. Right at the heart of modern culture is the ideal of personal freedom, that we can live well and truly be ourselves only if we are free to choose for ourselves. We have the greatest level of happiness and fulfillment when we have freedom to choose, when no one is constraining our choices. Now, how does this play into our moral intuitions about sex and gender? Well, to understand that, we need to step aside from sociology. That's kind of the area we've been talking about. And for a moment, we need to turn to technology. Up until the year 1960, one of the primary boundaries, not the only one, but one of the primary boundaries around sex was the boundary of fear. Fear of three things in particular. Fear of pregnancy, fear of social stigma and punishment, and fear of disease. Now, something happened in 1960, and it was in the field of technology. Scientists created something that came on the market in 1960 that changed the world. Some people, speaking with a little hyperbole, but not much, have gone so far as to say this particular piece of technology created the most profound change in the history of human civilization. Does anybody know what the technology was? The pill. That's right. Artificial hormonal contraception. On June 23, 1960, the FDA approved the pill for contraceptive use, and for the first time in world history, reliable contraception, and in particular, forms of contraception that women could take charge of themselves, such as the pill, the diaphragm, and other technologies, came into being. Now, the cultural effect of this, among others, has been to disconnect sex from having babies. Before 1960, having sex meant knowingly taking the risk of becoming a mother or father. After 1960, the connection faded, at least in our imaginations, and sex increasingly came to be seen as a normal element of any close or even casual relationship, and it has nothing to do with having a baby. This is in the church, and this is outside the church. Sex is now, in the imagination of most Christians and non-Christians, a kind of recreational activity. It was not seen like that before the pill, an activity that we fundamentally associate with pleasure, not procreation. And that's brand new. In the history of civilization, it has not been like that. Remember, prior to 1960, one of the primary boundaries around sex was fear, fear of pregnancy, fear of social stigma and punishment, and fear of disease. But then the pill and its cousins substantially undermine those first two fears, and modern medicine has erased the third fear. And so for the first time in history, society thinks of sex as something you can do without any serious consequence. Do you want to have sex or not? All right, at this moment in our secular age, what all this adds up to is that we tend to think, We should freely express ourselves with our bodies. We should freely express with our bodies what we feel in our hearts. How we feel about someone should determine how far we go with them sexually. And so when it comes to sex, each person should do what seems best to him or her. Mutual consent, not covenant. Consent, not covenant, is the new moral foundations for sex. Now, I need to back up for just a moment because it could sound like I'm being very negative about the sexual revolution, but it's not all bad. In fact, there is so much good in the sexual revolution. There is so much in the sexual revolution that has come from God. For example, human societies and cultures historically have known that sex is both powerful and potentially destructive, and so every society and culture has devised ways to regulate sex. And typically, the social regulation of sex throughout human history has involved the exercise of patriarchy, repression, domination, coercion, and exploitation. In other words, the social control of sexuality has not always or even often benefited the individuals involved. And so we've got to recognize that the social revolution of the 60s and the 70s was in part an attempt to remedy some of that exploitation and coercion and control. It was an attempt to remedy some of the problems with the traditional way of regulating this powerful thing, to lift former restrictions on sexual expression and to leave more up to individual choice and happiness. This is a part of the larger movement focused on freedom in Western society, and it's done incalculable good. For example, it's led to a far more just and fair society for minorities and women. A significant part of the sexual revolution has been the work of feminists fighting for women to be seen as individuals, as adults, as worthy of participation in the social contract, despite centuries of history in which female biology was seen as a reason for female subordination. Only recently in our society have we begun to acknowledge women's agency, sexual agency and otherwise, and and only recently have women begun to be seen as equals to men. This is a gift from God. This is a gift from God to our society through the sexual revolution. Another massive benefit of the sexual revolution is the relation is that the relationships of lesbian, gay and bisexual people are no longer criminalized. And there has been a remarkable decline in homophobia across the west. Still a lot left to do, but a lot of decline. Prior to the sexual revolution, Western societies perpetrated terrible cruelties against gay people. Chemical castration. Terrible cruelties. Not to mention what we did to unwed mothers. The sociology and the technology driving the sexual revolution have played a significant role in reducing the gender wage disparity. And the educational gains of women have come from feminism's advances in the sexual revolution. We need to see that the sexual revolution has confronted a traditional approach to marriage and sex that too often trapped people in abusive or toxic relationships and gave them no way out. The sexual revolution has exposed the fact that far too often the traditions around sexuality and gender have been used to disadvantage anybody who doesn't fit the mold. The church must recognize that the good old days failed miserably at times for far too many people in the whole area of relationships. There was so much relational dysfunction, so little attention paid to relational healing and growth that the good old days left millions of people disillusioned and yearning for more. And so for those for whom traditional society trapped in toxic relationships, the sexual revolution was a welcome release And so once again, just as I did last week, I'm saying that this is vitally important that we realize some very good reasons that our society has come to the point where we currently find ourselves. Christians have got to stop having this kind of black and white view. It used to be good, then bad people took over government, and now we're not Christian anymore. That is far That's just too ham-fisted. That ignores what God has been doing. There are so many benefits to the sexual revolution. Next week, I'm going to talk about more. But the sexual revolution has not been good for everybody. It has not freed all of us. It has only freed some of us and selectively some of us and at a serious price to many of us which is exactly what we should expect from any form of significant social change. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help conservative people learn to see the good in the sexual revolution. And I'm particularly concerned to push back against any thought that returning to the 50s is either possible or desirable. But I'm also trying to help those of us who see only the good in the sexual revolution to recognize there is deep harm happening. And for all of us, conservatives and liberals, we need to to see an alternative that is even better, an alternative that both the 50s and our current climate couldn't do can't do, an alternative that even more fully satisfies the longings of the human heart. So let's look at three ways in particular the sexual revolution is harming us. Number one, believe it or not, because of the sexual revolution, we're having less sex. Teenagers, your parents are having less sex than your grandparents, at least statistically. Your parents might be abnormal statistically, but... This is an irony. We're having less sex and less satisfying sex. In her now famous essay, it was the cover story of the December 2018 issue of The Atlantic. Kate Julian wrote, it's a long quote, so bear with me. The share of Americans who say sex between unmarried adults is not wrong, it's at an all-time high. New cases of HIV are at an all-time low. Most women can, at last, get birth control for free and the morning after pill without prescription. If hookups are your thing, grinder and tinder offer the prospect of casual sex within the hour. Sex is portrayed often graphically and sometimes gorgeously on primetime cable. Sexting is, statistically speaking, normal. Polyamory: a household word. Shame-laden terms like perversion have been replaced with cheerful-sounding terms like kink. And with the exception of perhaps incest and bestiality and, of course, non-consensual sex, our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation, and yet we're having less sex than ever. And it's not just Americans. Most countries don't measure how much sex their population has. Only the rich ones do. But, the, but every country that's measuring, yeah, America measures it, but don't worry, it's like samples. It's not like, a, it's not, I don't know, maybe it is Big Brother, who knows what's in the new fancy light bulbs. But <laughs> the British, the Australians, the fin- Finland, the Netherlands, the Swedes, the progressive Swedes and Japan, and most countries, the countries that do surveys and compile the data, every single one of them reports since the sexual revolution, a decline in frequency and satisfaction with sex. Isn't that ironic? From the vantage point of 50 years ago, it seems that we've reached an apex of sexual freedom. And in many ways, we are more unfettered when it comes to sex than ever before. There's less risk, less stigma, more opportunity, more options. And yet all of the data indicates that instead of a sexual renaissance, in the words of Kate Julian, we're in a sex recession. Then she followed it up a few years later with, it's now a sex depression. Now... That's the funny and ironic one. But in addition to less sex, here's another thing from the sexual revolution. There's a growing set of data that behind the rhetoric of choice and freedom, behind the cultural regime of easy sex, is real pain. We are getting hurt more. For example, the devastation following romantic breakups I'm not talking about the standard middle school, high school splits that sweep through the rumor mill and create a lot of drama and everybody cries for a day or two. Christian Smith, he's the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame. He writes in a book, the title of the book is Lost in Transition, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood. He writes about young adults who are sexually involved, who are living together or semi-living together. And when they break up, in his words, we have seen, quote, real emotional and physical trauma. Some dumped partners spend days sleeping and crying or lying in bed immobilized with depression and the anguish of being cheated on or otherwise betrayed. In his interviews, people, quote, spoke of profound struggles with self-doubt, self-criticism, Hopelessness that lasts for months of uncertainty about being able to trust another person ever again. At one point, Smith wrote, their accounts of their breakups seemed analogous to the accounts I get from people going through divorce. These are boyfriends and girlfriends. The devastation is hitting as deep as the devastation of divorce even though they've never gotten married. For many, the pain, this is Smith again, quote, the pain and fear linger even as they try to pick up the pieces and move on with their lives. There is a whole library's worth of data coming out about the pain, about loneliness after a sexual relationship breaks up, about insecurity. A few years ago, a group of researchers from Harvard University's Stem Cell Institute partnered with the Pacific Institute for Research and Evaluation and partnered with the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of North Carolina. All these groups partnered together. They published a set of articles in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, and they established two shocking facts. Number one, when teenagers and college students have sex, it significantly raises the risk of depression and suicide. And number two, despite the common myth, this is what what the survey proved, despite the common myth, young people are not self-medicating with sex and drugs. Sex and drugs lead to depression and suicide. It's not, I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, I medicate with sex and drugs. It's I begin to have sex and takes drugs, and that leads to depression and suicide. In other words, there are real demonstrable negative consequences to the sexual revolution, and its weight has fallen on the smallest and the weakest shoulders in our society, while simultaneously giving extra strength to those who are already the strongest and the most predatory. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but first... The deepest irony of the sexual revolution, and remember, there's so much good from it, and we've got to learn to see the good, and I'll talk more about the good next week. But the deepest irony in the sexual revolution is that with all of its gains for women, it overall has been a burden to women and a benefit to men. This is one of the most fascinating aspects of the sexual revolution. Its presumed beneficiaries, women, turn out to have problems and issues that their grandmothers didn't have. 2009, two Wharton School economists, Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wolfers, published their groundbreaking report, The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. Using 35 years of data from the general social survey, they observe that given the many social and economic transformations of modernity that appear to benefit women, things like a closing gender wage gap, educational attainment that now tops that of men, sexual freedom offered by artificial contraception, so on, one would reasonably expect, this is a quote from their, their article, to see those who are the beneficiaries of these trends registering increased happiness. Instead, it's the reverse. Over the past 35 years, women's, this is a quote, women's happiness has fallen both absolutely and relative to men's in a, perverse, in a pervasive way such that women no longer report being happier than men. Prior to the sexual revolution, they did And in many instances, they now report happiness below that of men. And their data shows that this is the case throughout the industrialized world. Now, this is mind-boggling. In a stunning sociological survey of the pain of romantic love in our secular age, Eva Iluz, she's a renowned sociologist from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She concludes her study. The title of it is Why Love Hurts. She concludes her study by observing this. Quote, women are in the odd historical position of having never been so sovereign in terms of their body and their emotions and yet of being emotionally so dominated by men. This is, this is dark. Christian Imba, uh, Christine Imba, a columnist for the Washington Post, wrote in a recent book, Rethinking Sex, just published this year. She writes that for all the talk of liberating women by equalizing opportunities for sexual pleasure, men seem the biggest beneficiaries. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote in a wonderful little book I'll tell you all about later um, called The Secular Creed. She wrote, quote, The sexual revolution was sold to us as the liberation of women. For centuries, men had been finding ways to sneak around marriage and have commitment-free sex. Thanks to the pill, now women can have commitment-free sex. But in the last 60 years, despite gains in freedoms and opportunities, women's self-reported happiness in America has declined. And she asked the question, why? And then she answers, a significant part of the reason is that commitment-free sex is a poisoned chalice. In a study published in the, May, in the May 14th, 2020 issue of the Journal of Mental Health and Clinical Psychology, significant evidence was produced that shows stable marriage correlates with mental and physical health benefits for both men and women, but being married seems to be particularly significantly, a particularly significant factor in women's health. And conversely, multiple studies have shown that for women in particular, increasing your number of sexual partners correlates with worse mental health, including higher levels of sadness, suicidal ideation, depression, and drug use. This is coming out of the literature out of the sociological and psychological literature. And this is not because women are uninterested in sex. So the more sex they have, the sadder they get. This study after study has indicated that married women experience more sex and better sex and more satisfying sex than their unmarried peers. In fact, a recent study found that women in highly religious marriages, which in the study was couples who pray together read the scriptures together, attend church together, and so on, they are twice as likely as their secular peers to say they are very satisfied in their sexual life. At the end of the day, the sexual revolution has brought so much good, but it is also causing a lot of pain. A lot of people, especially women, are having bad sex, unwanted, depressing, even traumatic, consensual sex. Something is deeply wrong. There is something unmistakably off in the way we're going about sex. So, what about the Christian vision of sex? Is it any better? Well, here are three ways in particular that the Christian vision of sexuality, of sex and gender, I think, can help us move forward, not backward. We don't want to go backward. So much good has come out of the sexual revolution. But we need to gather up the good and we need to move away from the bad. Three ways that I believe the Christian story really is a better story, and it can help us continue a move forward. First of all, the Christian approach to freedom is better, and it can help us because it's more realistic about what freedom is good freedom. In the late 19th century, one of the founders of sociology, Emil Durkheim, gathered data from across Europe to study the factors that affect the suicide rate. His findings can be summarized in one word, constraint. No matter how he parsed the data, people who had fewer social constraints, bonds, and obligations were more likely to kill themselves. Durkheim found that Protestants who lived the least demanding religious lives at the time, 100 years ago in Europe, had higher suicide rates than Catholics and Jews. He examined the family and found the same thing. People living alone were most likely to kill themselves. Married people, less likely. Married people with children, still less likely. Durkheim concluded that people need obligations and constraints to provide the structure that gives meaning to a life. Quote, the more weakened the groups to which a man belongs, the less he depends on them, the more he consequently depends only on himself and recognizes no other rules of conduct than what are founded in his own private interest. Now, that was 100 years ago. But the studies conducted since have only confirmed Durkheim's diagnosis. If you want to predict how happy someone is, or how long they will live, or if you're not allowed to ask about their genes or personality, you should find out about their social relationships. Having strong social relationships strengthens the immune system, extends life even more than quitting smoking. Really interesting, um, when we take our children to get their physicals and stuff, the last several years, I've noticed that our family, our family doctor has asked my teenage children, do you have friends? Do your parents know your friends? Are you close to your friends? Not, do you smoke? Well, he needs to ask them, do they smoke? I want to know if they smoke, but no. <laughs> Durkheim established, and most of us know, that the person who always keeps his options open is a person whose life is empty. And this is where the Christian story is so much better than the story our society is telling us. Because in Christianity, we learn that real freedom comes from the strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. Real freedom is not the absence of constraints. It's choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. In Christianity, we learn that the only freedom worth having, a freedom that does not finally trivialize our, our choices, is a freedom that acknowledges its limits. That freedom, a truly human freedom, will acknowledge that we're not God. And there's things we don't have control over. It will acknowledge the limits to which our nature presents us. All right. So I think, first of all, the Christian approach to sex is a better approach because it's it's better about freedom. The second reason that the Christian approach to sex is better is because it's not only more realistic about freedom, it's more realistic about sex. You see, our current cultural regime of casual sex fails to see that sex is not only pleasurable, it is powerful, often in ways beyond our individual control. Over the past several decades, our culture has gone a bit irrational on the question of sex. Attempting, it's attempting to hold two opposing opinions about something that was once seen as obvious. On the one hand, modern sexual liberals have mainstreamed the idea that sex means nothing or at least not very much. So we can watch it on TV. We can put it on our billboards. We can have casual hookups. Sexual desire is a physical, biological urge that is pleasant to fulfill. Orgasms are fun, and we don't need to read any more into it than that. On the other hand, as we saw last week, our society has also come to the conclusion that sex means everything. Having an active sex life is, is the way I become an adult. It's the way I show myself to the world. It's a sign and a symbol of my health. And especially for women, it's a political statement signifying power and liberation as a class and a gender and a generation. Sex is a key construction of our individual identities. We mull over our sexuality and now coming to age requires a coming to grips with orientation. So which is it? Hookup culture or sex is everything? Which is it? I can have casual sex or do not dare say anything about my sexual choices because that's my identity. Our our current culture is in this tight spot. Christianity helps us with this conundrum. The Christian vision offers us a better way of recognizing, on the one hand, the profound nature of sex, a better way of understanding why rape is so horrible, why it affects people so deeply, why sexual assault is such a violation of self sovereignty and it is so uniquely painful, why it is that when we try and pretend that sex has no special value, we end up in some very dark places, why sex touches something deep. And intrinsic in us. And here's the catch. As I began to point out last week, and I'll point out out much more in the weeks to come, Christianity helps us to see the power of sex without putting sex on a pedestal as the ultimate expression of agency. The Christian vision of sex recognizes both our sexuality is uniquely meaningful and it's not everything. A third reason the Christian approach to freedom, to sex, is better is because the Christian approach tells a better story about consent in two ways. First, the Christian vision of sexuality and gender is better at producing true consent. And second, the Christian vision of sex is better because it recognizes that while consent might be a good legal threshold, it's inadequate Or moral threshold. So first, to begin with, the sexual revolution has been absolutely right to insist on consent. This is a victory. It's a huge victory. After way too long, and thanks to the great feminist campaigning efforts of the last century, we have finally begun to see the rape of women as a crime against the woman raped. And it's because of feminists, And the sexual revolution that we no longer think of the rape of women as a crime against the men they're related to. Until the feminist movement, rape was a property crime. Finally, marital rape has been criminalized in some of the West. The fight to define rape as sex without consent has been so important. Sex must involve freedom. Because it it involves such complete and vulnerable mutual self-giving, it must be freely given. The gift of sex should never be conditional. It cannot depend on the partner meeting this or that condition. Sexual love cannot be coerced. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, the Christian vision is that sex reflects something about the unconditional love that the creator has for us. And if sex is to reflect the unconditional love of the creator, if sex is to reflect something about the free grace of a relationship with God, then it has to happen in freedom. Now, the marriage bed, a place of equality, mutuality, delight, covenant love, and consent is the only context for that kind of freedom. In the Christian approach, we can have true consent. Let me show you what I mean. And I'm going to quote a lot without telling you from this woman I told you about last week, Beth Felker Jones, who wrote this amazing book on sexual theology called Faithful. If you get my lecture notes, it'll actually footnote where I'm stealing from her. Here's where it goes. So marriage is this context that removes the dynamics that force false consent. Because marriage is the covenant context in which a person should be loved no matter what. Think about my wife and I's marriage. We said to each other, I do, I do, and we both said to each other early in our marriage, divorce is off the table. It's off the table. So, there's never this sense between us. Is this contingent? In other words, there should be no reason for sex in a marriage to be contaminated with that subtle form of coercion. Will he leave me? Will she leave me? Will I win their love? Will this person stay around? Now, obviously, in a sinful world, marriage is not always what it should be. I know that. I'm a pastor, I'm a human, I'm married. Too often I grieve with people over the sad reality that force, assault, and rape happen in marriage, but that's a distortion. I also know that it's tempting to use sex as a bargaining chip in marriage, but it should never be done. The fact that marriage can be and is distorted doesn't undo God's created intent for marriage. It doesn't undo the possibility, the reality that good, faithful marriages are happening in this world. So marriage is the place where consent, real and true, strong consent can happen in a way that no other context makes possible. This is true because of the covenantal nature of marriage. It's true also because marriage is a public institution. Marriage is profoundly public. Part of what we do when we marry is we stand up before our friends and our family and our church and we say, see this woman? See this man? I'm having sex with him tonight. I mean, we don't. (laughs) The point stands. All right. And this making sex public builds into marriage a set of safeguards, a kind of accountability which cannot exist in a private individual agreement. So marriage is the place for truly free love and truly consensual sex, but there's more. And this brings us to the second way that the Christian vision of sex and gender is better at consent. Consent suffices for a legal definition, but it's inadequate for a moral defense. The Christian vision helps us to see that consent is merely the baseline when it comes to sex. To be clear, consent must be present in any sexual encounter, otherwise it's immoral. Non-consensual sex is always wrong, but here's the catch. Consensual sex is not always right. And this is because sex is relational. And so consent alone does not make sex physically, emotionally, or psychologically safe. An attitude of uncritical sex positivity neglects this fact. Consensual sex can still hurt people in lasting ways. It can still betray their dignity. Just because someone desires something and another person consents doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Desires should not be exempt from critique. A sexual ethic that only focuses on consent is not enough. There are some desires that reinforce oppressive structures and stereotypes and that by breathing more life into them, we're making society worse. Some desires are worse than others. Some sex acts are bad, even when they're consented to. They're bad for the people consenting and they're bad for society. And this is one of the things that came out of the Me Too movement, this outpouring of rage and sorrow over a sexual culture that wasn't working for women. So many of the stories that came out were about criminal behavior. But a lot of stories came out of women who described sexual encounters that were technically consensual, but nonetheless left them feeling bad. And the consent ethic gives no way of dealing with that and so the christian vision of sex enables us to better recognize and resist the full range of abuse to make consent the sole criteria for sex fails in two ways one it fails to recognize the competitive nature of the sexual marketplace overstating the extent to which any of us can make truly free decision free choices in a system Look, to say consent is enough is like saying third-world countries that are consenting to the economic terms America is offering them makes the arrangement okay. It denies the power of the system to coerce. It fails to recognize the extent to which participants in the sexual free market are subjected to subtle coercion, just like workers in an economic system act in response to incentives and constraints. So we incentivize and we constrain, and then we say this third world country consented. What do you do on a college campus where women outnumber men? And where if a man doesn't get free sex, he can go to the next one. You have two options. Unless you are so astounding that you can still outcompete the other women that are sleeping around. You have to be okay with being left alone. This is a coerciveness to the current moment that consent can't handle. It can't deal with it. It falsely assumes that with the taboos removed, then we would all be liberated and capable of making entirely free choices about our sexual lives, sampling from a menu of delightful options made available by the sexual revolution. What I'm saying is that when we strip back all sexual morality to the bare bones of consent, we leave the way clear for the really devious predators. The consent framework is not robust enough to protect the vulnerable from harm. A second way that relying on consent alone fails is that it doesn't push us to ask the more important question. The most important question in sex is not, do you consent? It's what do I owe you as a human? The sexual revolution has failed to help us finally get cons- it has helped us finally get consent as a fundamental requirement. But in study after study and story after story we are discovering that for so many people sex is less pleasant than it was before. What was there before? A little bit of restraint. Rather than expanding our happiness, liberation seems to have shrunken it. We're not giddy on drunk or drunk on pleasure. We need to build consent. We need to build a sexual ethic on consent. It needs to move higher. It needs to become a sexual ethic that takes seriously consent but goes farther and asks what is good for this person. A sexual ethic that deals seriously with the fact that too much of what our culture considers normal sexual behavior is harmful to women. We should prioritize virtue over desire. Not do you desire this, but is this virtuous? The Christian vision of sex offers a counter-revolution, one that recognizes other human beings as real people invested with real value and dignity. It presents a view of sex that is good for people, good for society, good for our partners, and good for ourselves. Does the Christian vision bring more satisfaction, security, and freedom and fulfillment than the vision currently on offer? I believe it does. The Christian vision gives us norms that can liberate us from the enslavement that parades itself as freedom today. And the Christian approach delivers the desired goal of freedom that the hookup culture longs for but fails at. There have been so many good things in the sexual revolution. So many things we need to see and give thanks for. So many gifts. But at the same time, there is so much intense pain and destruction and disparity. The Christian approach to sex offers a quality of love and intimacy that is more fulfilling than our secular age can offer at its very best moment. Once we begin to take seriously both the benefits and the costs of the sexual revolution, we can't bury our heads in the sand. The technology shock of the pill, led our society to the prideful assumption that our society could be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and could function just fine. The last 60 years, however, have proved that assumption wrong. The the Christian vision of sex teaches us sex must be taken seriously. Some desires, even consented to, are still bad. Consent is not enough. Loveless sex is not empowering. And marriage is the best place for sex. I'll stop there. Mike, your turn. Come to the mic so that uh, the people online can...
1: Colored cards just like before each card has a prompt on it. We're going to give you a few minutes uh, Best you can write respond to that prompt on the card. We're going to collect those in a few minutes. We'll sort through them and try and uh, uh, Formulate questions that are that we feel like are kind of hitting the notes that we hear humming here in this in this room for Aubrey to respond to Are you ready Aubrey? Uh, yeah, okay, we'll so uh, this is, this is great, but I'm 70 years old. This all is like really, I can listen to it and it's stimulating intellectually. But now imagine I'm a teenager and I'm living in a world How where old are you, Mike? <laughs> when you go to, you go to school, uh, you face inordinate pressures. You're seeing stuff on media. Your friends talk about it. You watch uh, TV and sex just seems to be easy and free flowing. And uh, and there's a lot of pressure on you. How do you you've got kids in this stage of life? What advice can you give to parents about how to how to engage their children, their young people, and prepare them? Not even when they're teens, but even before. Just any anything you could say about that to prepare them so they can uh, be wise in 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 facing this pressure that they face. This powerful story. I
0: think you've got a couple of options we do as parents. One is to homeschool so that we control the story as much as possible. The second is to go second is to go to a really good Christian school so that their peer set, hopefully, is telling the story. The third is to go to a public school and be in a really good youth group. All three of these have the same fundamental element. The key is community. It's plausibility. God made us so that we won't give in to a thing unless it's plausible. And being in a great youth group or a really good Christian school or homeschooling done in a really good way, what all three of these things can do is they can help a teenager to see the counter narrative as plausible because their friends are holding it. I I think that's so important.
1: Um... Is there anything you would as a parent around the dinner table? Janelle time? Janelle, would you
0: add any what would you add? This is my wife. She's went much wiser about these practical things than I am. Would you what would you add?
1: I'm going to quickly repeat that just for the folks that might watch us on video. So Janelle says that it's extremely important to, to have open conversations with your kids. Keep the lines of communication open so that they feel safe to talk with you. They don't feel put down by your facial expressions or anything else. And as they're trying to sort through this, they've got, they've got a mom and a dad that are on their side and, and able, to talk, able to talk with them. You guys have a question? Yeah?
2: It seemed like a lot of people were, this was more of the confusing or disturbing idea than a direct question. So I'm trying to formulate an exact question from it, but basically that men benefited more from the sexual revolution than women did, and that women have these declining rates of happiness. Could you speak more to how men specifically have benefited and and ways to navigate that?
0: Yes, I can. All right, I'm gonna tell you about two books so this is a book by um, Mark Regnerus, who's uh, he's a professor at University of Texas, right? Yes. Listen, Mark is, Regnerus is at UT, isn't he? And Christian Smith's at... Okay, so um, this book is about the way the marketplace disempowers women. I made that quick little comment about if the whole marketplace has gone to casual sex, the way that is a coercive thing for women, this is a, a book of sociology where he establishes that um, the price women are paying for making sex cheap. And it's, a, it's kind of, um, so it's based, it's based just on the logic of the way markets when a thing gets devalued, the way that disempowers women. It's, it's astonishing. Right. This book was written, it just, it just came out, I don't, maybe in the last couple of months, but it's in 2022. And this is Louise Perry. And she's using evolutionary biology to explain why this is happening, why casual sex is harming women. So he's using kind of an economic theory approach, and she's using evolutionary biology to explain women. Look, women pay all the price. Women pay the price for birth control, right? It screws up your hormones. Um, Women pay the price for getting pregnant. Women pay so much of the price. They, women are, on average, upper body strength, I think, is 30% uh, lower than on average men. Now, these are bell curves, and there's always exceptions. Lower body strength is like 20% of a man, 20% lower than a man. So a, a woman in a room with a man is, on average, always disadvantaged. And that's a big part of this. So when when sex is free and casual, and then when you add in alcohol and drugs, and consent as as the ethical standard does not adequately account for the power dynamic on a physical level. And it doesn't account for the way the market occurs. And then Louise Perry, when she uses evolutionary biology, She's talking about the fact that, so humans gestate a child for like nine months. This is a huge thing, right? This is a big amount of investment. And so for a woman, in evolu- I mean, if humans have been around for 200,000 years, what she's arguing is what, what evolved, what happened at an evolutionary level for the, pe- for the species to, to make it. And part of it is that women had to know the moment I get pregnant, I'm super vulnerable. So I'm going to be picky about who I let make me pregnant. Because if I can let somebody make me pregnant, who's going to stick around This is going to be a much easier process. And so she uses evolutionary biology to show that women have evolved to a place where frequent, cheap, um, commitment-free sex goes against the evolutionary process. So I'm I'm way out at the edge. You know, I have a PhD in, like, Bible and philosophy, and I'm now talking about evolutionary biology and market um, economics. But... If you want to read more about this stuff, then here here are two places. So as a result of this, what's happening is one, one more term from evolutionary biology. There's a thing called sociosexuality. It's a person's capacity to have sex with more than one person. And no matter the ethnicity, no matter the nationality, no matter... Where we study this, men have a higher sociosexuality than women. And she accounts for this through evolutionary biology. But here's what she ends up saying. This is on average. So there are a few women, statistically speaking, who are comfortable with a casual sex environment. But there are far more of them who have not, they do not function in that kind of way. So a result of all of this is that, I think I'll stop there. I mean, I don't want to keep dribbling on. Am I answering it or am I answering something else?
2: No, no, I, 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 think, I think you're answering it. <laughs> I think, I think it's, it, it kind of goes with the better story thing, how we weren't wired, how there, there's a way that the Lord has designed us. And I, I think it can, can be compassionate towards women saying what you think is freedom is, is actually damaging and kind of gives a, a different narrative from what the culture is giving.
0: That's right. Um, societies that have highly regulated marriage have increased um, technology, wealth, mental, physical health at a far higher rate than societies that diminish the regulation around marriage. Permanent monogamy is not necessarily an evolutionary thing. It goes against the flow in a lot of ways, but it's the best Institution civilization has ever found for protecting the vulnerable and increasing health and wealth. And this is what's coming out of the studies. And so this is another way that the sexual revolution, but the trick we've got to always remember is that when we say the sexual revolution, there's a lot of parts of it. I named a lot of good parts tonight. And so when we just throw the sexual revolution under the bus, it's like throwing the term gay as this only means sex under the bus. We as Christians have got to learn this was a much bigger movement. And a lot of it was driven by God because the church had not helped women be protected from rape. The church had not made it the case that rape is a crime against women. Second wave feminism did that in America. And God's going to get his way, whether it's through the church or outside the church. And so we've got to learn to see all of this. And if the price of admission to critique the sexual revolution is to recognizing the good in it. If you can't recognize the good in it, you don't get to critique the bad in it. Because if you don't recognize the good in me, you don't get to critique the bad in me. Right? That's just the way humans function. Thank you. Uh, so this uh, sort of comes from a number of different angles. But are there ways that you've seen or are aware of where the biblical ethic of restraint when it comes to sex has been misused or abused within the church, say, the evangelical church? In other words, churches that hold up this idea of chastity and, and things like that, have, they, have there been ways where that has been used to Very, harm people? Very, absolutely. Something, I think I opened the, the whole series with this way in which purity culture can get toxic, the way it can cause us to think that my worth is connected to my sexual purity. That goes into some very dark places. Um, Other ways. Uh, Can you think of other ways, Bob?
1: I'm just asking
0: the (laughs) question. Come on! (laughs) If we in the question out to the church that holds this better story view, has it been unhelpful in a hundred ways? In so many ways. And that's part, I've named that and I'll name it more in lectures to come. The ways in which the church has failed and the church has not lived up to its birthright. Um, there's so many, I mean, right now our, our America is filled with stories from the Southern Baptists to the Catholic church to the Mennonites where there's been these systems that have not protected the vulnerable and um, they've not paid attention to the ways that power dynamics disempower people. They've not come to grips with um, the fact That we need to let victims have very clear pathways to register abuse. And we need to learn a lot about what it actually takes to make a clear pathway so that an abuse accusation can be brought forth. So maybe one of the ways that the church has done this historically is uh, to use the language of the biblical sexual ethic, but borrow from culture what that means to them. So it becomes a a way of abusing people rather than actually helping them. Yeah, and I think that if you wanna be abusive and you can add religious power to all other kinds of power, it gets pretty scary, yeah. There were a few questions about birth control, Um, just the idea that separating sex from procreation was a negative that happened um, with the advent of the pill. Um, But are there benefits that might outweigh the negative and is birth control harmful even in a marriage context? So I'm gonna talk more about this. It's funny, whenever I talk about this to evangelicals, it's a lot of evangelicals, very first time to ever hear birth control critiqued. They had no idea that there was a serious problem with it. I'm gonna talk a lot more about birth control when in the in the lecture I do on the purposes of sex. I think the title of it is With the Grain of the Universe. And that's gonna be in one, two, I think three weeks from now. Um, I'm not against birth control. Um, I'm an Anglican, not a Catholic. And there's an important difference. So just bottom line real quick, the, Uh, the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church had a huge debate about this and where we differed, and and I believe the Anglican um, approach is this. The Anglican Church says that not every sex act has to be open to a child, but every sexual relationship has to be open to a child. So it's a kind of modified view, but what the Catholic Church helps us to see is that birth control is not a value-neutral technology. It has changed us. It causes us to think that sex is, it it causes us to forget the kind of powerful atavistic force that's in sex. Like think about the way you would be shaped if your whole sexual life, every time that that it always had to bear in mind, am I willing to bring a child into the world? It kind of just gives it a gravity. That that even Christians who absolutely love children and the things of God and are, are all that suddenly we have to help people think about sex in that kind of way, because we're used to just saying, "Hey, uh, you want to watch a TV show? You want to have sex? Like like it's just another version of recreation," and and the pill has caused us to forget. This And so when I do talk about the purpose of sex, I'm going to talk at length about that, and I'll present some more of the kind of theology around how we can think about birth control, and we'll get to have some much more, I think, specific questions then related to it.
1: So, Aubrey, there were some questions about uh, marriage and uh, the idea that if marriage is such a great thing for the sexual relationship, why are so many marriages struggling? And uh, maybe if you, I don't know if you could call out some ways in marriage that, uh, that sex becomes a toxic kind of thing and, and uh, particularly maybe the role that men play in that.
0: Yeah, so the research indicates that women in highly religious marriages pray together, read the Bible together, go to church together, have a significantly higher sexual satisfaction rate than their peers who do not, on average. Oh, that's right. All statistics, right? They're always on average. Um, But that's not at all talking about the fact that marriage can get very difficult and very painful. It's just, what is the best context for sex. What, what gives you the best chance of having good sex and not bad sex? Marriage does. What is what, what the Bible teaches us theologically, but it's what sociology and psychology, it's what all of that is showing us statistically. Now... Why are some marriages terrible? Well, Tim Keller is really good at this. This pastor in New York, he says, the, the moment you come to believe that the the worst thing about your marriage, the biggest threat to your marriage, is your selfishness, the moment you just you realize that is the moment your marriage has a chance. <laughs> <laughs> that your that your selfishness is, is is the biggest challenge to your marriage, not not your spouse's like. Flaws that we could all lay hands on them and pray for them about. <laughs> so, um, obviously, it's that. Uh, I'm, there are so many, that, Mike. I just kind of feel like the question there's so many answers like people bring baggage into marriage, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. bring themselves and their selfishness into marriage. Um, some marriages suffer the blows of external events that happen to them that are totally out of their control. I mean, some marriages are cruising along and like a Titanic striking an iceberg. A thing happens, and we pray our guts out, and we fight as hard as we can. And we wait until the kingdom come for God to solve it because it, it can't. I mean, sometimes external things happen.
1: So, yeah, okay. So there, there's also some questions around the idea that in a marriage, in, in the sexual uh, dimension of marriage, that oh. sometimes a husband might actually be coercive toward the wife because they'll say, uh, for example, uh, the body. if I don't get to have sex with you, then I'm going to have all kinds of lust issues. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, maybe yeah I, I kind way. of
0: referred to this last week. This idea that sex is a right or a need can destroy a relationship. That if I, This is a lie that's going around in our culture that if <laughs> it goes back to the way Freud conceived of humans... And maybe we'll talk about this in one of the weeks. And it, there was this idea that was set up that, that all of your problems can be traced back to how you were handled sexually as an infant. And it, it conceived of humans in a way that, that produces the idea, I've got to have sex. If I don't have sex, then, then I'm going to kind of, it's going to kind of jack me up inside. That's just not true. You can have a great, fulfilling life by sublimating your erotic desires. And anytime you put on a spouse that you need sex, you're wrong. You're wrong. Jesus proves you wrong. Jesus was a human. Christianity rises or falls on the fact that Jesus was a human as humans are meant to be. When Pilate said, behold the man. That was, that's one of the most theologically dense statements in all the Bible. That look at Jesus. And that is a human as humans were meant to be. And he did not have sex. Now look. If he didn't eat, he would have died. If he didn't drink, he would have died. If he didn't have shelter, he would have died. He did not have sex. And it did not kill him. And this coerces marriage. This hurts people so badly. And we all need to grow to the place where we can sublimate, which is a technical term, maybe we can talk more about that another week, where we can sublimate our erotic desires because for most people, for most of their life, you're not going to be having sex. That's good, thanks. I'm just looking around in the room to figure out whose parents those kids are up there. I know it's not mine. Mine are probably sitting somewhere very quietly. It's oh, it's it. It's Amelie's little girls. Mm. Amelie.
2: Who is running that youth group? I oh, bet it's Harry, to be honest. It's 100. He, he's hairy. a wild man. It's absolutely Harry. Okay, what effect do you think social media has had on women's reports of declining happiness? Do you think that Wait,
0: social media has had on what?
2: Women's reports of declining happiness, and does Ooh. that correlate with sexual revolution trends?
0: Um, the studies on, that I access on women's happiness, I, they, they were 35 years of data, and they were produced in about 2015, so that that predates social social media. I was looking for my footnotes to see exactly the dates on on some of these cases. The uh, question. Yeah.
2: I wonder if it just kind of taps into kind of. I feel like a lot of women on social media. A lot of the point is to project desirability. Yeah. And kind of the.
0: Yeah! 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 So, so uh, absolutely. There's a lot of research coming out now. I did not access that. I was looking at the research on this, that was trying to tease out things and to isolate the impact of the social revolu- sexual revolution on people. So, I, I mean...
2: Do you think there's a correlation between declining happiness and women kind of feeling like they have the freedom, quote-unquote freedom, to have casual and sexual encounters, but really it's still kind of enslaving them to to project desirability to men. It's a, it kind of still feels like a power play, I guess. I, um,
0: because, uh, am I stretching? Okay, so I watched this TikTok. <laughs> oh, this is true. This is like a good... This TikTok that was just heartbreaking. It was this young woman, and I thought about playing it tonight, but it, it went viral last year. It was this young woman who's in college, And she says, look, I'm a part of the, I I participate in the hookup culture. And it was this point I was making about the way consent. There's a lot of stories coming out now where people are saying I consented, but I still feel harmed. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is coming out around choking, which is a terrible thing that's happening right now. And a lot of other things like that. And um, she's crying. And she says, Here's what she she's talking about how bad she feels about herself. Now, I watched her subsequent stuff, too, and she, she hasn't changed. Like, she's still involved in the hookup culture. But she said, look, she said, here's what I've been doing this week. And then she brought on the screen her favorite pictures of her as a little girl. And she said, I'm starting to ask myself. Would I let a man do this to that little girl? Would I tell this little girl to grow up and do that? And she starts weeping. And you know what she's doing? She's mothering herself. One of the things the sexual revolution has done is it's told women to stop listening to their mothers. And so she, like a whole bunch of other women, are having to mother herself. She's having to look at herself and imagine herself as a little girl again in order to create the kind of psychic place where she can see her way out of the hookup culture. I don't know if I just used your question to tell a story I didn't get to fit in my notes (laughs) or...
2: That's great, thank you.
0: Okay, Um, I'm going to tell you about some books. I've already told you about this, Louise Perry, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She believes in premarital sex. She affirms uh, gay sex. This is not a Christian argument. This is an argument against the sexual revolution from the standpoint of evolutionary biology. Um, <laughs> this book, Keith just made all kinds of jokes about the picture of this book this week. If you can't see it clear enough to know what Keith um, was bothered by, it, then you should come look. This is Christine Imba. Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. She's a journalist for the Washington Post. These two books both just came out this week. She is not, she's okay with non-married sex. She is a Catholic. She was raised evangelical. She held her virginity until late in college, she talks about, and then she jumped in the hookup culture. And she's rediscovering her faith now. She's still in favor. It's in the book of, she's not against premarital sex and such, but she's telling the story against the sexual revolution because of the damage it's doing to her and her friends. And it's just a book filled with stories of her and her friends talking about the way we don't see a way out of this. I feel dirty. I feel shamed. It's not helping me. It's so forth and so on. So um, I already told you about this book, Mark Regnerus. He's a very important sociologist, cheap sex, um, the transformation of men, marriage, and monogamy in the way that free... Uh, that non-commitment sex, consensual, uh, casual sex, the way it's harming women uh, from a, He's using economic principles to prove that. Uh, if you're interested in stuff about the pill and about the technology of birth control and the way that changed the game, this is the book that I think is most helpful, Mary Eberstadt, a- Adam and Eve, After the Pill, Paradoxes of Sexual Revolution. Um, she was a speech writer for Ronald Reagan. She's um, quite a significant public intellectual. She doesn't see any good in the sexual revolution. So if you read in this, this is quite polemical. Um, here's another very important book, Lost in Transition by Christian Smith, The Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood. This is, this is a sociology text. Um, he's the chair of sociology at Notre Dame. And this is quite, Story, and then this is a book that was written last year by a brilliant young woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, the Secular Creed, engaging five five contemporary claims. It's quite winsome. She was, um, I think that she, I think, she says that she was a, she's British. She went to Cambridge. She was a lesbian, and she discovered, found Christ, became a Christian, and now she's quite a just a wonderful winsome writer about the intersection of Christianity and culture. And a lot of the stuff about the, the recent studies of marital happiness, sexual satisfaction for women within marriage, um, she's documenting a lot of that. So I'll leave these up here. You're welcome to look at them. And um, yeah, I'll pray and we'll be done. Thank you, Father, for this time that we've had together. And I pray that you would take these words And what we've done here tonight, like you took the little boy's fish in the loaves and you would turn it into something that brings life to the world. In Christ's name, amen.